Okay, we'll open up a Bible or a phone or whatever to 2 Samuel chapter 3. 2 Samuel chapter 3. If you've missed out on what we've been doing, we're in a series on the life of David. Um, and I'm going to attempt the impossible today and preach five chapters of the Bible. Yes. We will be handing out light refreshments at lunchtime, midway. Now, I'm going to try and do it uh, as, as swiftly as possible without skipping stuff. But we needed to do this to both zoom in and zoom out. Otherwise, like I said, we'll be in the life of David until um, a couple of years' time. And so we're going to be focusing on chapter 3. But what I want to give you is some of chapter 2. Then we'll read all of chapter 3. And then I'll give you chapters 4 and 5 in summary. And then we'll come back and dig deep on, on what I think the Lord is wanting us to see in chapter 3 of Second Samuel um, this morning. Before we get there, I want to help us focus our minds and our hearts by asking this question. How many of you look at the world around us and, and sometimes just scratch your head and you think, what on earth is God doing? What on earth is God doing? Maybe you, maybe you don't read the news too much. You're one of those people who's just sort of, it's all too depressing and confusing. You just tap out. You're just like, nope, I'm happy with my head in the sand. You take the ostrich approach. It's like, mm, I don't really want to know. It's, it's overwhelming. You tap out of social media every now and then. But, um, you know, you're aware enough of what's going on in the world. Some of you are news hounds and, you know, just consume everything. You read all this stuff and you live in the world and you think, you see all the stuff happening and you see pockets of goodness and stuff like that. But you wonder on the whole, what is God up to? Where is God moving? What is God active in the world doing? And maybe then you zoom in on your own life and sometimes, depending on what you're going through, what season you're in, you can ask what, what is God doing in my life? Sometimes God can feel very absent, doesn't he? It's like he's busy, I say this often, like he's busy in the Ukraine. They're like you, you're not a priority at the moment. Like there's big issues going on in the world. Like you're just bubbling along, there's no massive crisis. Well, your crisis isn't as big as that crisis. So God has limited ability, limited energy. And so he's running around putting out the fires in the most significant places. And the waves that are washing over your life just pale in comparison. And so you feel a bit like, left out, and you look at your own life, and you wonder, what is God doing in my life? Sometimes it's easy to see, isn't it? It's like, oh, yeah, God's fingerprints all over my life. It's easy. He's leading. He's doing these things. But there are times, I think, when we look at our lives and think, what is God up to? Is, is God active in my life? Is, is God involved? Is God controlling things? Is God allowing this to come into my life? Why did God bring this about? I think as we look at these verse, these chapters this morning, we're going to see and be reminded of some very significant truths that God is always at work. And it may be hidden, often is hidden, but that doesn't mean it's not true. What's been going on? Let me give you some of the backstory. Saul and Jonathan, the first king has died. His son Jonathan dies with him. Then you move to, and David grieves them in chapter 1. Chapter 2, David asks the Lord, where should he go? And I'm going to say a few things this morning so that you can remember them. It says, David inquired of the Lord, and the Lord said to him, go to Hebron. David inquired of the Lord. If you only remember a few things this morning, remember that. David inquired of the Lord. What do you want me to do? Where do you want me to go? I'm going to make a whole point of this later on. That if you live your life like that, it's very different to living like you think you have the best plan for your own life. But David inquires of the Lord, Lord, where do you want me to go? And the Lord says, go to Hebron. And he goes down to Hebron and they make him king, king of the south. He's not king of all of Israel yet. This is an evolving plan. 
Basically, he becomes king of this small southern section of Hebron. Um, the house of Saul is still around there. Abner, who was Saul, King Saul's commander of his armies. Okay, you're going to have to pay attention because there's lots of names this morning. And if you don't pay attention, you're going to get lost. Okay, so Saul had Abner. He's there together. Uh, David has Joab. Okay, so Saul, Abner, Abner, the commander of Saul's armies. Saul's gone. Uh, Abner decides to move Saul's son, uh, his, his second, only two sons left, Ishbosheth. There's some names coming down the pipeline this morning. I, we are not even getting started yet. Ishbosheth is, is uh, the Saul's son. Uh, um, Abner decides to move him to a place called Manahim and make him the king there, the king of Israel. So Abner's like uh, moves him there to protect him and makes him king uh, over Israel. Then they decide, uh, Abner decides he wants to go and fight against David's men. So they head down, uh, they're making their way. I'm not going to give you all the geography, but they basically go out, and they bump into Joab, which is the commander of David's armies. Are you, are you tracking still with me? Excellent. Yeah, it's amazing. So they bump into each other, and they decide, hey, instead of us all going toe-to-toe, let's select 12 oaks. This is a bit like the Springboks play in New Zealand. Like, we don't all go to war against the New Zealand. We just send our best to go and play and beat them, like, like better than we've ever beaten them before. Did you see that yesterday? That deserves an amen. They pick, they pick 12 from either side, and the 12 oaks, the Bible is weird. These 12 oaks go into contact, and they, they kill each other. So you've got 12 oaks representing each other from each side, and they both, they stab each other all at the same time, and they all die. I'm not making it up. It's all there. You can go and read it. I promise you. It's all there, chapter 2. And this precipitates a large-scale war. So now all the rest of the oaks have to get involved because that didn't settle the issue. And uh, Joab's men, so I think David's army, end up pursuing these guys. They're chasing them. There is a fast guy in Team David called Azahel. Azahel is fast. It says he runs. He doesn't deviate left or right. It's like I think Cheslin Colby faster than any of the other oaks. That's what the Bible says. He's faster. And he starts chasing Abner. Think commander of Saul's army. He's chasing Abner saying, Azahel, leave me alone, bud. Leave me alone. I'm warning you. Stop chasing me. Azahel doesn't want to hear it. Leave me alone. Leave me alone. Doesn't want to hear it. Doesn't want to hear it. Ends up getting close to him. Stabs him. In the stomach, kills him. Dead. Okay? All the soldiers get there. They're like, this is not good. They decide. And then his brothers... So Job is his one brother. They keep chasing him, chasing him, chasing him, chasing him, chasing him. Eventually, they make a truce. They decide to all go back home. So they all go home. There's like 400 oaks who've died on the day. Okay? That's chapter 2. Okay? <laughs> chapter 3, we're going to read. I think I'll do a better job. I'm just going to read the Bible. I think it's better than my summary is. I'm warning you, this is a long chapter. If you don't come to church often, you are getting like all of your church attendance Bible reading in one dosage this morning. It's your fault that we're having to read a whole chapter because the Lord wants to get a whole chapter into you in case you may not come back again, which you may not after this chapter. Chapter 3, during the long war, I may stop and narrate throughout this because it does need some, I think, narration. During the long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, David was growing stronger and the house of Saul was becoming weaker. Sons were born to David in Hebron. His firstborn was Amnon by Anahim, the Jezreelite. His second was Chiliab by Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite. 
The third was Absalom, the son of Makkah, the daughter of King Talmai of Geshur. The fourth was Adonijah, son of Haggith. The fifth was somebody else, son of Abital. The sixth was Ithraim by David's wife, Eglah. All of you guys having kids, why don't we see some of these names making a comeback? These were born to David in Hebron. During the war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner, Abner kept acquiring more power in the house of Saul. Now Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, daughter of Aya, and Ishbosheth questioned Abner, why did you sleep with my father's concubine? Abner was very angry about Ishbosheth's accusation. Am I a dog's head who belongs to Judah? He asked. All this time I've been loyal to the family of your father Saul, to his brothers and to his friends, and haven't betrayed you to David. But now you accuse me of wrongdoing with this woman. May God punish Abner and do so severely if I don't do for David what the Lord swore to him. To transfer the kingdom of the house of Saul and establish the throne of David over Israel and Judah from Dan to Beersheba. Ishbosheth did not dare respond to Abner because he was afraid of him. Abner sent messengers as his representatives to say to David, Whose land is it? Make your covenant with me, and you can be certain I'm on your side to turn all Israel over to you. David replied, Good, I'll make a covenant with you. However, there's one thing I require of you. You will not see my face unless you first bring Saul's daughter, Michal, when you come to see me. Do you remember that Michal was promised to David as a wife and then given to another guy? So this is sort of his first wife. He's added a few wives, but this is his original like wife. who got Because Saul was just using her as a pawn, sent her to somebody else to spite David. Then David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, son of Saul, give me back my wife Michal. I was engaged to her for the price of a hundred Philistine foreskins. So Ishbosheth sent someone to take her away from her husband, Paltiel, son of Laish. Her husband followed her, weeping all the way to Bahurim. Abner said to him, Go back. So he went back. That's like one of the saddest passages in the Bible, I think, right there. Or Paltiel weeping and then get told to go back. He went back. 17. Abner conferred with the elders of Israel. In the past, you wanted David to be king over you. Now take action, because the Lord has spoken concerning David. Through my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the power of the Philistines and the power of all Israel's enemies. Abner also, in, also informed the Benjamites and went to Hebron to inform David about all that was agreed on by Israel and the whole house of Benjamin. When Abner and 20 men came to David at Hebron, David held a banquet for him and his men. Abner said to David, let me now go and I will gather all Israel to my Lord the King. They will make a covenant with you and you will reign over all you desire. So David dismissed Abner and he went in peace. Just then David's soldiers and Joab returned from a raid and brought a large amount of plundered goods with them. Abner was not with David in Hebron because David had dismissed him and he had gone in peace. When Joab and his whole army arrived, Joab was informed Abner, son of Ner, came to see the king, and the king dismissed him, and he went in peace. Joab went to the king and said, what have you done? Look here, Abner came to you. Why did you dismiss him? Now he's getting away. 
You know that Abner, son of Ner, came to deceive you, to find out what you're doing, about your military activities and everything you're doing. Then Joab left David and sent messengers after Abner. They brought him back from the well of Sirah, but David was unaware of it. When Abner returned to Hebron, Joab pulled him aside to the middle of the city gate, as if to speak to him privately, and there Joab stabbed him in the stomach. So Abner died in revenge for the death of Azahel, Joab's brother. David heard about it later and said, I and my kingdom are forever innocent before the Lord concerning the blood of Abner, son of Ner. May it hang over Joab's head and his father's whole family, and may the house of Joab never be without someone who has a discharge or a skin disease or a man who can only work a spindle or someone who falls by the sword or starves. Joab and his brother Abishai killed Abner because he had put their brother Azahel to death in the battle at Gibeon. David then ordered Job and all the people who were with him, tear your clothes and put on sackcloth and mourn over Abner. And King David walked behind the coffin. When they buried Abner in Hebron, the king wept aloud at Abner's tomb. All the people wept, and the king sang a lament for Abner. Should Abner die as a fool dies? Your hands were not bound, your feet were not placed in bronze shackles. You fell like one who falls victim to criminals. And all the people wept over him even more. Then they came to urge David to eat food while it was still day, but David took an oath, may God punish me and do so severely if I, if I taste bread or anything else before sunset. All the people took note of this, and it pleased them. In fact, everything the king did pleased them. On that day, all the troops and all Israel were convinced that the king had no part in the killing of Abner, son of Ner. Then the king said to his soldiers, you must know that a great leader has fallen in Israel today. As for me, even though I am the anointed king, I have little power today. These men, the sons of Zariah, are too fierce for me. May the Lord repay the evildoer according to his evil. It's a lot. Let's pray. Father, we are, as always, grateful for the gift of your word. Thank you that you speak. Thank you that you've spoken. You have recorded for us everything that you want us to know. And you give the gift of the Holy Spirit to open up our eyes that we can see what we need to see and hear what we need to hear. And we pray that as we, as we look at this, as we listen to this narrative this morning, as we seek to understand these events, that you would speak to us. This happened, this happened so long ago. And yet you've recorded it for us. And you've brought us to it this morning because you want to speak to us. There's things for us to learn. There's things for us to know about ourselves and about you. And so we ask now that, Holy Spirit, you would teach us. Give us hearts to receive. Help us with the illumination that we need. Quicken our minds and our hearts. We want to hear and know the, the voice and the words of the living God amongst us. And so we look to you for that this morning now in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me just give you what happens in chapter 4 and 5 so you can see the full picture of where we're going. Obviously, Abner gets taken out. That leaves who? Ishbosheth as the king, Saul's son. And chapter 4 is basically another assassination. So Abner gets assassinated. 
then Ishbosheth gets assassinated by his own guys. It says there's two guys, uh, Bana and Richab. They're like um, leaders of the raiding party of Saul's army. And they basically, the summary is that they sneak in. It's terrible. They sneak into Ishbosheth's tent while he's having a nap, a mid afternoon nap. Remember those? Um, and uh, they sneak in and they, they, they kill him while he's asleep, uh, chop off his head, and then uh, take his head to David. Uh, like, hey, recognize this guy? Uh, and David is properly unimpressed. And he orders, because what they've done is wrong. And what he orders is that uh, they are put to death. And so they get put to death and their hands and feet get chopped off and their bodies get hung up on the um, city walls and stuff like that. It's, you know, you watch Netflix and Game of Thrones, and oh, I don't watch Game of Thrones, but some of you did. Uh, you watch other stuff like that, and you think, well, I mean, if they made a movie of the Bible, like some of these sections, yeah, like, it would be, you wouldn't let your kids watch it. You wouldn't be allowed to watch it. it it's, so, it's so hectic. Um, and so, Ishbosheth is now out of the picture. Saul only has one son left. His name is Mephibosheth, and we'll bump into him in a couple of weeks' time. He's a, he's a crippled son. And so David eventually, uh, chapter 5, he becomes the king over all of Israel. He attacks Jerusalem that's held by the Jebusites. God gives him victory, and he picks Jerusalem as to be the city of David, the city of Zion, where he's going to rule from. And God gives him victory there. And the end of chapter 5 is basically, again, David inquiring of the Lord twice, should he attack the Philistines? And God says yes to him twice and gives him two different military strategies. And he consolidates the safety of the nation and the people of Israel. So that's the end of chapter 5. Okay, that's the big picture of what's been happening as David becomes king. So I want to do two things. I want to zoom in and then I want to zoom out. So I want to zoom in. In all of this, all of these names, all of this detail, and some of you might be thinking, couldn't you have done the summary of chapter 3? Like, that would have been, like, that was a lot. Um, and I, I just want to say, like, we have a massive commitment to what is called the public reading of Scripture. And I know it, it may seem strange, like, that's such a random old passage, like, didn't really refresh my soul at all. But we have a deep commitment to reading God's Word as it is in public like this. And not just, like, not me just jumping up and saying, hey, and I was reading this Old Testament story, wave my Bible around, and never actually read it, and never have us read it together to show us where we're getting the stuff out of it. And trust that God does things that even reading what may seem like obscure and random passages of Scripture, like 2 Samuel 3, is good for us. It's good for us to see. It's good for us to hear. God honors it. Um, and that's why we included it, and that's why I took the time this morning to read such a long passage and to give you the other chapters uh, on either side. But let's zoom in. I want to first zoom in on, I want to zoom in on two characters here, the central characters of Abner and David. And as we've said all the way through David's life, David is a contrast always. You see David, and we're, the way we're approaching this series is contrasting David's relationships with different people, what he learns from different people, how God shapes his life through his interactions with different people. And Abner is one of them. Um, Abner sticks around all the way to the death of David. So it looks like things are going a bit wild and pear-shaped here. Abner, no, did I say Abner sticks around? Sorry, Joab. Joab sticks around for 40 years. Joab is still causing trouble at the end of days um, for David. 
But Abner obviously gets whacked. What is, let's have a look at the character of Abner because I think that's the contrast in this story. Abner is the self-promoting guy. Abner is worried about who? Abner. Abner is worried about Abner, and David is worried about the things of the kingdom. He's willing, you saw it in chapter 3, he's willing to do whatever it takes to what? To only promote himself. It looks like a magnanimous thing moving. It looks like a, a gracious thing moving Ishbosheth into a safe city, making him the king. But he's actually just moving guys around to promote himself. And when Ishbosheth questions him and says, Hey, but uh, I heard something happened between you and Rizpah, one of the concubines. Back then, if you, if you slept with the wife or the concubine of the king, it was basically uh, a coup. It's basically taking power. It's, 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 a, it's a play for power kind of thing. And the, the passage is vague about whether it actually happened or whether he's just accused of it. His strong reaction doesn't help clarify that for us. But Ishbosheth accuses him of sleeping with Rizpah. And what happens to Abner? He goes from being on team Saul to being on team David like this. Why? Because he realizes that Ishbosheth is weak. He's never going to be the king. He says, I'm going to go and join team David to fulfill everything the Lord has said to David is going to come to pass. Because Abner had been around already with Saul. Abner knew that God had anointed David to be the future king of all of Israel. He knew it. The writing was on the wall. And in that moment, he switches sides. And he launches Ishbosheth, and he goes and he heads off to go make a covenant with David. And you look at it and you think, so quickly. Jeez, bro, you're not a very loyal dude. But he's all about himself. He's all about what's going to promote the interests of Abner. He thinks that he is the kingmaker. He thinks, he goes to David, what does he say to David? He said, hey, you need my help to get these other tribes to get onto your side so that you can be the king over all of Israel. At the moment, you're only the king over one tribe, Daniel. You need all of these other guys on board. I'm your guy. Pick me, and I'll go get all of these guys on board, and you can be the king over all Israel. He honestly thinks that he is pulling the strings of the whole country. He thinks he's the kingmaker because he hasn't actually met the real kingmaker. And David knows who the real kingmaker is. Doesn't he? He knows that the Lord has anointed him to be the king of Israel. And so he's able to trust the Lord to bring about the purposes that he has for him in his own time. He doesn't have to MacGyver things. He doesn't have to act deceitfully and wickedly. He's able to trust God's time. And you see that not happening with Abner. He is all about himself. David's completely different. We know David's not perfect. We've seen that and we're going to see it again. David is not a perfect man. He's not a perfect king. But there's a phrase that you see uh, three times in these, two, in, these, in these four or five chapters. You see it three times. David inquired of the Lord. David inquired of the Lord. He inquires of the Lord whether to go to Hebron and he inquires of the Lord twice whether he should attack the Philistines. David inquired of the Lord. What David was learning was that the Lord was leading him and that he, the Lord had his hand over his life and that he was learning to trust him. So he asks, hey, Lord, what do you want me to do? 
He doesn't think, I'm David. I've been anointed. I whacked that giant. I'm the guy. I know what I'm doing. The Lord has anointed me. I'm sorted. I know what I should do. No, no. You see this posture in David. And when he inquires of the Lord, it goes well. And when he doesn't inquire of the Lord, it goes sideways. We see, we're going to see all of those events when David is not inquiring of the Lord what he's still capable of. But you see here, when he inquires of the Lord, the Lord leads him and guides him, and he ends up cementing his authority as the king of Israel. Inquires of the Lord. It shows a dependence, a trust, a waiting for God. I want to challenge us this morning because those, those lines, that, that phrase jumped out at me as I was reading these passages over and over again this week. David inquired of the Lord. Is that what your life looks like? Is that the default pattern? I don't know what to do. Let me inquire of the Lord. Let me wait until the Lord speaks. Let me wait until the Lord makes it clear. Let me trust that the Lord has a better plan for my life than I can engineer for my own. Guys, sometimes you have to wait. God is not like a celestial slot machine. You know? You know, ping him. You know that you get different types of people in the world that relate to WhatsApp messages. Some people who send a WhatsApp message and you can expect a reply within a year. You might be one of those people. And you get other people who live on WhatsApp and you know that if you reply to them, you know, they're always online. They're going to blue tick you back. You'll get a message immediately. Sheep and goats. There's like two different types, and you'll find yourself somewhere in there on the spectrum there. I'm trying to think why I mentioned that to you. Hmm? Waiting. Thank you. That's why I need these likes to help me out. Some of us don't want to wait. Some of us don't want to wait. We just send a message to the Lord, and it needs to be read immediately and answered. Lord, I, I prayed about this this morning. What's going on? The, the, the scripture says the Lord is the rewarder of those who earnestly seek Him. That means knocking. It means asking. It means waiting for an answer. It doesn't mean, Lord, I asked you. You didn't answer me. You obviously want me to make up the decision on my own. Stomp feet. Take matter into own hands. That's not what it means. If the Lord hasn't answered yet, it means wait. Or seek more. Or press in. We're impatient. We're so impatient. We get ourselves into a million problems and a million holes because we're an impatient people. We don't wait on the Lord's direction. And here you see David inquiring of the Lord, Lord, what do you want me to do? And I want to challenge you about your decisions and your priorities and about your life. I've been so frustrated. This is me pastorally venting mid-sermon. I've been so frustrated by people over the last while who come to me and say, the Lord... Uh, the Lord's sending us somewhere else. The Lord's opened up this. And I'm like, I want to hear more about how did the Lord do this kind of thing. And there is no inquiring of the Lord. There's no prayerful waiting. There's no seeking out wise counsel. There's nothing. There's just a desire to either go somewhere or do something different. And they just act on it. Because an op I said this a few weeks ago. Just because an opportunity arises doesn't mean the Lord wants you to take it. Not every open door needs to be walked through. There is an inquiring of the Lord, a waiting on Him to say, go or stay or do or don't. That you see in the scriptures of those who wait on the Lord. And when we run ahead, we get ourselves into a million heartaches. And so I want to challenge 
I want to challenge you as you think of Abner's life and you contrast it with David and ask you this question, who are you all about? Who are you all about? Are you all about yourself? Or are you all about God and his kingdom? Because you can live like an Abner kind of life. So it's all about me, self-promotion. I need to get ahead. I need to make a plan for myself. It's all, you're the center of your own universe. Or you can live a David. I'm looking at David while I say this. This is odd. I look, a David kind of life where you're about the Lord. You, you make decisions around your own life, asking this question, Lord, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? Where do you want me to go? Who do you want me to serve? I belong to you. This is a message for you. If you are, if you're not a Christian yet, I'll talk to you in a second. If you are a Christian, if you have committed yourself to be a follower of Jesus, the, the testimony of this book is what? That you are not your own. You have been bought with a price. You belong to God. You do not have free reign and authority over your own life to make your own decisions to do whatever you want. You are subject to another. He has bought you with his own blood and he has plans for you and for your life. And he doesn't want you to squander them in wastefulness and thinking that you have the best plan for your life. He wants you to seek him and wait for him and follow him as he leads you. It doesn't mean you stand stationary and say, the Lord never answered me. 30 years I've been waiting for an answer. There's so much that's explicitly clear about what you should be doing. Just start with what's clear. And for those of you who aren't yet believers in Jesus, this is my appeal to you that this is what you were made for. You were made not to carve out your own significance and importance. It's exhausting trying to make a name and a life for yourself. And maybe you're exhausted here this morning, having to try and drum up meaning and purpose and significance for yourself. The call of the Bible and of the God who made you is this, that you come to Him and that you find your significance and your worth and your importance in Him, in a relationship with Him. The lights come on and you're like, I belong to God. This is why He's made me. This is why I'm still on the earth. And all the pieces of your life start to make more sense. And if you've never encountered that, I would encourage you to seek it out with all of your energy. Ask the questions. Interrogate Christianity because if it's true, it's the most important thing. It is the most. If it's not true, it's not worth anything. But if it is true, it's the most important thing. Who are you all about? David inquired of the Lord. There's more stuff that we could see as we zoom in, but I want to zoom out a little bit quickly here before we focus our hearts again on Jesus. There's two things I just want to point out here. The first is that not everything you see in the Scriptures is to be replicated. Not everything you see in the Scriptures is to be replicated. You can read passages of the Scripture like this and think, Ooh. if you find a verse in the Bible, uh, it doesn't mean that, oh, look, there's sanction for me to do whatever I want. You know, as we read the, um, the beginning of chapter 3, does anything jump out at you as we read those first verses? It says the house of um, David was getting stronger, the house of Saul was getting weaker, and David added to himself these sons. And we ran through that list. I skipped over a couple of names. But it's this concubine, this concubine, this concubine, this wife, this wife, this wife, this wife. You probably missed it. It's understandable. Verse 3. Uh, the son of Makkah, the daughter of, the, of King Talmai of Geshur. King Talmai of Geshur. His daughter became David's wife. Hmm. 
It doesn't sound like she's a local. That was not on the instructions. They were not allowed to marry foreign nations. What is David doing? He's disobeying the Lord. And he's adding and adding and adding. Whilst he's not meant to have more than what? Yeah. And everyone's like, oh, you see the Old Testament endorses polygamy? No, it doesn't. It describes it. It describes it. It doesn't endorse it. It doesn't celebrate it. It just describes it. You see things in the Bible that are descriptive, and you see things in the Bible that are prescriptive. Like, do this. And you see some things in the Bible that are just, this happened. These things are like, this happened. It's not like, go and build up a harem, add wife upon wife, concubine after concubine. Solomon, I was reading again for my encourager, had 700 wives, 300 concubines, 1,000 women. I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm just going to not say anything more. I'm going to get myself into all kinds of misery if I comment on that. But it's wrong. And what does it say? The, the assessment of Solomon's life is what? That, that it was the addition of all those women, and particularly the ones from foreign nations that did what? In old age, they led his heart away from the Lord. And Solomon, blessed with wisdom, the wisest man ever, compromises on something God said clearly, don't do that, and thought he knew better, and does it, and he ends up what? At end of days, with a heart that's miles away from God. Guys, if you compromise on something that God has clearly said, don't do this. Don't think that you can ask for forgiveness and out-engineer it, end up in a different place. He says no for reasons. And we get ourselves into a million sorrows thinking that we know better. I mean, he obviously thought it was a great idea to have 700 wives, 300 concubines, and millions of kids. Something you see in the scriptures, not necessarily to be repeated. David's wives, you see all this bloodshed. It's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's go to war. No, 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 it's not, it's not a call to arms. It's a description. I mean, when I read this, I want to I I edit it. I'm like, can we have less decapitations the whole way through the Old Testament? It's just like, it doesn't sit lucky with you. I mean, this, you're not going to read this to your kids at night. You know, like, hey, come, you know, cuddle up. We're going to read the Bible together. The kids will never go to sleep. They'll be like, what the heck? You know, they chopped off his head, hands, feet. Like, every, everyone gets something lopped off them. You know, it's hectic. It's not, it's not advocating that behavior. It's just describing it, guys. That's the first thing. The second thing is more important. The second thing is this, that God can draw straight lines with crooked sticks. You look at these guys, and this relates back to the question I asked earlier. You look at the world around us and you think, is God in control? What is God doing? Sometimes we have to say, we don't actually know, clearly. We can't see it. We can't discern it all, clearly. But you look back at this story, and imagine being closer to it. Imagine being closer to it, being in it. This oak's getting assassinated, then this oak's getting assassinated. These 12 oaks are having a bit of a thing, and then they all die. We're now killing 400 oaks in a day. Imagine you're just a regular part of the army, and you're thinking, God, what on earth are you doing? Or you're even David. And you're seeing all of this around you, and you're like, what is going on? I know God's called me, anointed me to be the king of Israel, but man, this looks like an absolute mess. The truth here 
And the thing to see is that God does draw straight lines with crooked sticks, with crooked people. The crooked sticks are the events and the people. And God accomplishes his purposes. This is what I want to be the most meaningful thing you walk away with this morning. That God is going to accomplish his purposes in this world, in spite and through the sinful mess of his creation. When we look at our eyes and we see what people are doing in the world, we say, God, where are you? What's going on? I know where where he is. He's behind all of that, still working out his good purposes for his ultimate glory and our ultimate good. That's what he's doing. And you see in the mess of this, and it's not just, this is like a couple of isolated chapters we've looked at. Go all the way through the Old Testament. Go into the New Testament. You see the same thing. Human sinfulness trying its best to mess up the world and mess up God's plan. And what do you see behind it all? The plan and the purposes of God unfolding step by step by step, undaunted by humanity's sinfulness and wickedness. God is able to work out his perfect plan in the midst of all the chaos that we see around us. And guys, bring it home. It's not just, oh, okay, I go to lunch today, like, hey, God's got the whole world in his hands. That's lacquer. God is able to bring about his perfect purposes in your life, in your own life, despite your best efforts to mess it up. (laughs) Isn't that lacquer? Despite my best efforts to sabotage God's purposes for even for my own life, God's faithfulness can override my stupidity and my sin and ultimately bring about something that glorifies him. And he does it for me, and he's doing it for you. And that doesn't mean that you should sin more so grace may abound. Okay, cool, like I want to I impress everything. Let's make the crookedest stick possible and see if it can draw a straight line. That's not what it's saying. The Bible says you're going to get yourself into a million heartaches if you chase off the sin and rebellion. But the truth and the encouragement is this. Guys, that God is holding you. And God is working in your life. And he's not, he doesn't need to give you an answer. He's not saying, oh, one day he's going to pull back the covers and say, look what I did, look what I did, look what I did. He doesn't owe you that. He doesn't owe you that. What he does owe you is faithfulness. He doesn't owe it to you. He gives it to you. He will remain faithful when you are faithless. When your sin seeks to sabotage God's good purposes, you need to remember that he is working all things out for your good. And he is relentlessly committed to doing that, not because there's anything spectacular about you, but because there's a million things that are spectacular about him. And he is faithful and powerful in ways that we can't wrap our minds around. Again, this narrative this morning points us to Jesus as we close. Jesus is the one who isn't about himself, isn't he? He's the anti-Abner. He's not about self-promotion. He's about giving his life away for the sake of others. And if you're a Christian, you sit here this morning, loved by God because Jesus was willing to give of himself, to prioritize you over himself, be willing to go to the cross on your behalf. And in the mess of the cross, the greatest wickedness the world has ever known, where the the innocent Son of God got put to death, what looks like an absolute mess is actually what? The perfect plan of God 
coming to pass. Guys, just because it's hard and it looks like a mess doesn't mean that God isn't at work. Sometimes it's in the deepest wickedness that God's beautiful plan is coming to pass. That's what you see. That's what the cross testifies to us about. If you witnessed the cross, you would have thought, what is going on here? This is a disaster, an absolute disaster. And yet it's God's perfect plan that his son would die in that way. As we come to pray this morning, I want to give you a couple of minutes to just sit and bring your own heart to the Lord as we do every Sunday, just to rest and to say, before we run into the rest of the day, say, Lord, what have you been speaking to me about? We've covered a lot of things, a lot of different things. What is the, what, what, Lord, what are you saying to me this morning? What, what do you want to settle in my heart this morning? How are you calling me to respond? Because he does this all in different ways in our hearts, doesn't he? So let's, before we rush, let's just sit with the Lord and then I'm going to lead us in prayer before we sing again. Father, we see so much of uh, Abner in our own hearts, uh, a desire for self-promotion, placing ourselves at the center, thinking about ourselves the most. And we're people who need your help. We know that that's not a life-giving way to live. That you've made us for more. You've made us to be sons and daughters of yours and to live for the kingdom. To seek first the kingdom and have all other things added to us. And so we pray that you would help us and help our hearts this morning. Give us grace to be transformed by the renewing power of the gospel and the Holy Spirit to, to fade, as it were, into the, to the background like John the Baptist, that we would become less and you would become more. Help that to be true of the longing of our hearts. Give us this longing to decrease that you might increase. And to trust you, Father. Pray for those who are struggling to trust you for the perfect plan you have for their life this morning. Thank you for the reminder again that you are always working. That you're always working out your perfect purposes for our lives and for the world. Even when it's confusing to us, when it's messy, when it's disappointing, when it's unclear. You are the faithful God who who fulfills his purposes. I pray for grace for us this morning to trust you. Particularly for those who are struggling to trust you with their lives, with their circumstances, with what they're going through this morning, that you would give them renewed grace to recommit their lives 
um, to you for your care and for your providence and your protection, for your guidance, for your leading, for, for all the longings that their hearts have this morning. Help us to trust you, Father. It's difficult to trust somebody you don't know. And so we pray that you'd increase our knowledge of you. That you would open up our eyes, you would reveal more of your nature and your character and your ways to us. That that would increase our trust, that we'd be able to say, yes, Father, you do, you do love us. You are holding our lives in your hands. You are working out good things for us. And as we look at the world around us, help us to trust you as well. Help us to be courageous and, and bold to step out and venture in new and audacious things for you, trusting that you are holding our lives. We pray first and foremost for our hearts this morning. And I pray for those who don't know you uh, this morning, who haven't made that step to place full trust in you this morning. I pray that they would recognize the drawing um, work of the Holy Spirit, pulling them into a relationship with you, Father. And that you would grant to them uh, faith to believe that you are who you say you are, that you offer forgiveness in Jesus for all of their sin, all of their guilt, all of their shame, all of their regret. And you offer to make them new. I pray that you'd be, you'd be sparking that newness in hearts this morning and giving grace and courage to people to respond to what you're doing in their lives this morning. Thank you that you love us and you hold us. We're going to go into a new week again soon, and, and there's going to be so much noise that always comes with every week. So many competing messages, so much busyness, so much pressure, deadlines, work, kids, sport. Just life is going to come again, and we're going to be tempted to listen to other voices and to doubt that our good Father is faithful to us again and is holding our lives perfectly. And I pray you would hold us there. Hold our hearts in that place of faith and believing that you are good and that you do good. And that in the midst of all these things, you are working out your perfect plan. We love you and we worship you this morning, Father. In Jesus' name.